Book One, Chapter Eight of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Eight. Catherine was much perplexed as to how she was to carry out her resolution. She pondered over it through much of the night. She was painfully anxious to make Ellesmere understand without a scene, without a definite proposal and a definite rejection. It was no use letting things drift. Something brusque and marked there must be. She quietly made her dispositions. It was long after the grey, vaporous morning stole on the hills before she fell lightly, restlessly, asleep. To her healthful youth a sleepless night was almost unknown. She wandered through the long hours of it, whether now, like other women, she had had her story, passed through her one supreme moment, and she thought of one or two worthy old maids she knew in the neighbourhood with a new and curious pity. Had any of them, too, gone down into Marysdale and come up widowed indeed? All through, no doubt, there was a certain melancholy pride in her own spiritual strength. It was not mine, she would have said with perfect sincerity, but God's. Still, whatever its source, it had been there at command, and the reflection carried with it a sad sense of security. It was as though a soldier after his first skirmish should congratulate himself on being bulletproof. To be sure, there was an intense trouble and disquiet in the thought that she and Mr. Ellesmere must meet again, probably many times. The period of his original invitation had been warmly extended by the Thornburgs. She believed he meant to stay another week or ten days in the valley. But in the spiritual exultation of the night she felt herself equal to any conflict, any endurance, and she fell asleep, the hands clasped on her breast expressing a kind of resolute patience, like those of some old sepulchral monument. The following morning Ellesmere examined the clouds and the barometer with abnormal interest. The day was sunless and lowering, but not raining, and he represented to Mrs. Thornburg, with a hypocritical assumption of the practical man, that with rugs and mackintoshes it was possible to picnic on the dampest grass. But he could not make out the vicar's wife. She was all sighs and flightiness. She supposed they could go, and didn't see what good it would do them. She had twenty different views, and all of them more or less mixed up with pettishness as to the best place for a picnic on a grey day. And at last she grew so difficult that Robert suspected something desperately wrong with the household, and withdrew lest male guests might be in the way. Then she pursued him into the study, and thrust a spectator into his hands, begging him to convey it to Burwood. She asked it lugubriously, with many sighs, her cap much askew. Robert could have kissed her, curls and all, one moment for suggesting the errand, and the next could almost have signed her committal to the county lunatic asylum with a clear conscience. What an extraordinary person it was! Off he went, however, with his spectator under his arm, whistling. Mrs. Thornburg caught the sound through an open window, and tore the flannel across she was preparing for a mother's meeting with a noise like the rattle of musketry. Whistling! She would like to know what grounds he had for it, indeed. She always knew, she always said, and would go on saying, that Catherine Laban would die an old maid. Meanwhile, Robert had strolled across to Burwood with the lightest heart. By way of keeping all his anticipations within the bounds of strict reason, he told himself that it was impossible he should see her in the morning. She was always busy in the morning. He approached the house as a Catholic might approach a shrine. That was her window, that upper casement with the little banksia rose twining round it. One night, when he and the vicar had been out late on the hills, he had seen a light streaming from it across the valley, 
and a thought how the mysteries of the maiden solitude within shone in a naughty world. In the drive he met Mrs. Leyburn, who was strolling about the garden. She at once informed him with much languid plaintiveness that Catherine had gone to Winborough for the day, and would not be able to join the picnic. Ellesmere stood still. "'Gone?' he cried. "'But it was all arranged with her yesterday.' Mrs. Leyburn shrugged her shoulders. She, too, was evidently much put out. "'So I told her. But you know, Mr. Ellesmere,' and the gentle widow dropped her voice as though communicating a secret, "'when Catherine's once made up her mind, you may as well try to dig away high fell as move her. She asked me to tell Mrs. Thornburg, will you, please, that she found it was her day for the orphan asylum, and one or two other pieces of business, and she must go.' "'Mrs. Thornburg, And not a word for him, for him to whom she had given her promise. She had gone to Wimborough to avoid him, and she had gone in the brusquest way that it might be unmistakable. The young man stood with his hands thrust into the pockets of his long coat, hearing with half an air the remarks that Mrs. Leyburn was making to him about the picnic. Was the wretched thing to come off, after all? He was too proud and sore to suggest an alternative, but Mrs. Thornburg managed that for him. When he got back, he told the vicar in the hall of Miss Leyburn's flight in the fewest possible words, and then his long legs vanished up the stairs in a twinkling, and the door of his room shut behind him. A few minutes afterwards, Mrs. Thornburg's shrill voice was heard in the hall, calling to the servant, "'Sarah, let the hamper alone. Take out the chickens.' And a minute after, the vicar came up to his door. "'Elsmere, Mrs. Thornburg thinks the day is too uncertain. Better put it off.' which Ellesmere from inside replied with a vigorous assent. The vicar slowly descended to tackle his spouse, who seemed to have established herself for the morning in his sanctum, though the parish accounts were clamouring to be done, and this morning in the week had belonged to them by immemorial usage. But Mrs. Thornburg was unmanageable. She sat opposite to him with one hand on each knee, solemnly demanding of him if he knew what was to be done with young women nowadays, because she didn't. The tormented vicar declined to be drawn into so illimitable a subject, recommended patience, declared that it might all be a mistake, and tried hard to absorb himself in the consideration of two shillings eightpence plus two shillings elevenpence minus ninepence. "'And I suppose, William,' said his wife to him at last, with withering sarcasm, "'that you'd sit by and see Catherine break that young man's heart, and send him back to his mother no better than he came here, in spite of all the beef-tea and jelly Sarah and I have been putting into him, and never lift a finger.' "'You'd see his life blasted, and you'd do nothing. Nothing, I suppose.' And she fixed him with a fiercely interrogative eye. Uh, "'Of course,' cried the vicar, roused. "'I should think so. What good did an outsider ever get by by meddling in a love affair? Take care of yourself, Emma. If the girl doesn't care for him, you can't make her.' The vicar's wife rose, the upturned corners of her mouth, saying unutterable things. "'Doesn't care for him?' she echoed in a tone which implied that her husband's headpiece was past praying for. "'Yes, doesn't care for him,' said the vicar, nettled. "'What else should make her give him a snub like this?' Mrs. Thornburg looked at him again with exasperation. Then a curious expression stole into her eyes. "'Oh, the Lord only knows,' she said with a hasty freedom of speech which left the vicar feeling decidedly uncomfortable as she shut the door after her. However, if the higher powers alone knew, Mrs. Thornburg was convinced that she could make a very shrewd guess at the causes of Catherine's behaviour. In her opinion, it was all pure cussedness. 
Catherine Leyburn had always conducted her life on principles entirely different from those of other people. Mrs. Thornburg wholly denied, as she sat bridling by herself, that it was a Christian necessity to make yourself and other people uncomfortable. Yet this was what this perverse young woman was always doing. Here was a charming young man who had fallen in love with her at first sight, and had done his best to make the fact plain to her in the most chivalrous, devoted ways. Catherine encourages him, walks with him, talks with him, is for a whole three weeks more gay and cheerful and more like other girls than she has ever been known to be, and then, at the end of it, just when everybody is breathlessly awaiting the natural denouement, goes off to spend the day that should have been the day of her betrothal in pottering about orphan asylums, leaving everybody, but especially the poor young man, to look ridiculous. No, Mrs. Thornburg had no patience with her, none at all. It was all because she would not be happy like anybody else, but must needs set herself up to be peculiar. Why not live on a pillar and go to hair shirts at once? Then the rest of the world would know what to be at. Meanwhile, Rose was in no small excitement. While her mother and Elsmere had been talking in the garden, she had been discreetly waiting in the back behind the angle of the house, and when she saw Elsmere walk off, she followed him with eager, sympathetic eyes. "'Poor fellow!' she said to herself, but this time with a little tone of patronage which a girl of eighteen, conscious of graces and good looks, never shrinks from assuming towards an elder male, especially a male in love with someone else. "'I wonder whether he thinks he knows anything about Catherine.' But her own feeling to-day was very soft and complex. Yesterday it had been all hot rebellion. To-day it was all remorse and wondering curiosity. What had brought Catherine into her room with that white face and that bewildering change of policy? What had made her do this brusque, discourteous thing to-day? Rose, having been delayed by the loss of one of her goloshes in a bog, had been once near her and Ellesmere during that dripping descent from Shammore, they had been so clearly absorbed in one another that she fled on guiltily to Agnes, galosh in hand, without waiting to put it on. Confident, however, that neither Ellesmere nor Catherine had been aware of her little adventure. And at the Shanmore tea, Catherine herself had discussed the picnic, offering, in fact, to guide the party to a particular guild in High Fell, better known to her than any one else. Oh, of course, it's our salvation in this world and the next that's in the way, thought Rose sitting crouched up in a grassy nook in the garden, her shoulders up to her ears, her chin in her hands. "'I wish to goodness Catherine wouldn't think so much about mine, at any rate. I hate,' added this incorrigible young person, "'I hate being the third part of a moral obstacle against my will. I declare I don't believe we should be any of us go to perdition, even if Catherine did marry. And what a wretch I am to think so after last night!' "'Oh, dear, I wish she'd let me do something for her. I wish she'd ask me to black her boots for her, or put her in her tuckers, or tidy her drawers for her, or anything worse still, and I'd do it and welcome.' It was getting uncomfortably serious all round, Rose admitted. But there was one element of comedy besides Mrs. Thornburg, and that was Mrs. Leyburn's unconsciousness. "'Mamma is too good,' thought the girl, with a little ripple of laughter. She takes it as a matter of course that all the world should admire us, scorn to believe that anybody did it from interested motives. Which was perfectly true. Mrs. Leyburn was too devoted to her daughters to feel any fidgety interest in their marrying. Of course, the most eligible persons would be only too thankful to marry them when the moment came. Meanwhile, her devotion was in no need of the confirming testimony of lovers. It was sufficient in itself, and kept her mind gently occupied from morning till night 
if it had occurred to her to notice that Robert Elsmere had been paying special attention to anyone in the family, she would have suggested with perfect naivety that it was herself. For he had been to her the very pink of courtesy and consideration, and she was of the opinion that poor Richard's views of the degeneracy of Oxford men would have been modified could he have seen this particular specimen. Later on in the morning, Rose had been out giving Bob a run, while Agnes drove with her mother. On the way home she overtook Elsmere, returning from an errand for the vicar. "'It's not so bad,' she said to him, laughing, pointing to the sky. "'We really might have gone.' "'Oh, it would have been cheerless,' he said simply. His look of depression amazed her. She felt a quick movement of sympathy, a wild wish to bid him cheer up and fight it out. If she could just have shown him Catherine as she looked last night, why couldn't she talk it out with him? Absurd conventions! She had half a mind to try. But the grave look of the man beside her deterred even her young, half-childish audacity. "'Catherine will have a good day for all her business,' she said carelessly. He assented quietly. Oh, after that handshake on the bridge yesterday, she could not stand it. She must give him a hint how the land lay. I suppose she will spend the afternoon with Aunt Ellen. Mr. Elsmere, what did you think of Aunt Ellen? Elsmere started, and could not help smiling into the young girl's beautiful eyes, which were radiant with fun. A, a most estimable person, he said. Are you on good terms with her, Miss Rose? Oh, dear, no, she said with a little face. I am not a Laban. I wear aesthetic dresses, and Aunt Ellen has special leadings of the spirit, to the effect that the violin is a soul-destroying instrument. Oh, dear, and the girl's mouth twisted. It's alarming to think if Catherine hadn't been Catherine, how like Aunt Ellen she might have been. She flashed a mischievous look at him, and thrilled as she caught the sudden change of expression in his face. Your sister has the Westmoreland strength in her. One can see that, he said evidently speaking with some difficulty. "'Strength! Oh, yes, Catherine has plenty of strength!' cried Rose, and then was silent a moment. "'You know, Mr. Elsmere,' she went on at last, obeying some inward impulse, "'or perhaps you don't know, that at home we are all Catherine's creatures. She does exactly what she likes with us. When my father died she was sixteen, Agnes was ten, and I was eight. We came here to live. We were not very rich, of course, and Mamma wasn't strong. Well, she did everything.' She taught us. We've scarcely had any teacher but her since then. She did most of the housekeeping. And you can see for herself what she does for the neighbours and poor folk. She's never ill. She's never idle. She always knows her own mind. We are everything we are, almost everything we have, to her. Her nursing has kept Mamma alive through one or two illnesses. Our lawyer says he never knew any business affairs better managed than ours, and Catherine manages them. The one thing she never takes any care or thought for is herself. What we should do without her, I can't imagine. And yet sometimes I think if it goes on much longer, none of us three will have any character of our own left. After all, you know, it may be good for the weak people to struggle on their own feet, if the strong would only believe it, instead of always being carried. The strong people needn't be always trampling on themselves, if they only knew. She stopped abruptly flushing scarlet over her own daring. Her eyes were feverishly bright, and her voice vibrated under a strange mixture of feelings—sympathy, reverence, and a passionate inner admiration struggling with rebellion and protest. They had reached the gate of the vicarage. Elsmere stopped and looked at his companion with a singular lightening of expression. 
He saw perfectly that the young, impetuous creature understood him, that she felt his cause was not prospering, and that she wanted to help him. He saw that what she meant by this picture of their common life was that no one need expect Catherine Leyburn to be an easy prey, that she wanted to impress on him in her eager way that such lives as her sister's were not to be gathered at a touch without difficulty from the branch that bears them. She was exhorting him to courage. Nay, he caught more than exhortation, a sort of secret message from her bright, excited looks and incoherent speech that made his heart leap. But pride and delicacy forbade him to put his feeling into words. "'You don't hope to persuade me that your sister reckons you among the weak persons of the world?' he said, laughing, his hand on the gate. Rose could have blessed him for thus turning the conversation. What on earth could she have said next? She stood bantering a little longer, and then ran off with Bob. Ellesmere passed the rest of the morning wandering meditatively over the cloudy fells. After all, he was anywhere he was, before the blessed madness, the up-flooding hope, nay, almost certainty, of yesterday. His attack had been for the moment repulsed. He gathered from Rose's manner that Catherine's action with regard to the picnic had not been unmeaning nor accidental, as on second thoughts he had been half trying to persuade himself. Evidently those about her felt it to be ominous. Well, then, at worst, when they met, they would meet on a different footing, with a sense of something critical between them. Oh, if he did but know a little more clearly how he stood! He spent a noonday hour on a grey rock on the side of the fell between Windale and Marysdale, studying the path opposite, the stepping-stones, the bit of white road. The minutes passed in a kind of trance of memory. Oh, that soft, childlike movement to him, after his speech about her father! that heavenly yielding and self-forgetfulness which shone in her every look and movement as she stood balancing on the stepping-stones. If after all she should prove cruel to him, would he not have a legitimate grievance, a heavy charge to fling against her maiden gentleness? He trampled on the notion. Let her do with him as she would. She would be his saint always, unquestioned, unarraigned. But with such a memory in his mind it was impossible that any man, least of all a man of Ellesmere's temperament, could be very hopeless. Oh, yes, he had been rash, foolhardy. Do such divine creatures stoop to mortal men as easily as he had dreamt? He recognises all the difficulties, he enters into the force of all the ties that bind her, or imagines that he does. But he is a man, and her lover, and if she loves him, in the end love will conquer, must conquer. For his more modern sense, deeply Christianized as it is, assumes almost without argument the sacredness of passion and its claim, wherein a vast difference between himself and that solitary wrestler in Marysdale. Meanwhile he kept all his hopes and fears to himself. Mrs. Thornburg was dying to talk to him, but though his mobile, boyish temperament made it impossible for him to disguise his change of mood, there was in him a certain natural dignity which life greatly developed, but which made it always possible for him to hold his own against curiosity and indiscretion. Mrs. Thornburg had to hold her peace. As for the vicar, he developed what were for him a surprising number of new topics of conversation, and in the late afternoon took Ellesmere a run up the fells to the nearest fragment of the Roman road, which runs with such magnificent disregard of the humours of Mother Earth over the very top of High Street towards Penrith and Carlisle. Next day 
It looked as though, after many waverings, the characteristic Westman and weather had descended upon them in good earnest. From early morning till late evening the valley was wrapped in damp clouds or moving rain, which swept down from the west through the great basin of the hills and rolled along the course of the river, wrapping trees and fells and houses in the same misty, cheerless drizzle. Under the outward pall of rain, indeed, the valley was renewing its summer youth. The river was swelling with an impetuous music through all its dwindled channels. The crags flung out white waterfalls again, which the heat had almost dried away. And by noon the whole green hollow was vocal with the sounds of water, water flashing and foaming in the river, water leaping downwards from the rocks, water dripping steadily from the larches and sycamores and the slate-eaves of the houses. Elsmere sat indoors, reading up the history of the parish system of Surrey, or pretending to do so. He sat in a corner of the study, where he and the vicar protected each other against Mrs. Thornburg. That good woman would open the door once and again in the morning, and put her head through in search of prey, but on being confronted with two studious men, instead of one, each buried up to the ears in folios, she would give vent to an irritable cough, and retire discomforted. In reality, Elsmere was thinking of nothing in the world but what Catherine Leyburn might be doing that morning. Judging a north countrywoman by the pusillanimous southern standard, he found himself glorying in the weather. She could not wander far from him to-day. After the early dinner he escaped, just as the vicar's wife was devising an excuse on which to convey both him and herself to Burwood, and sallied forth with a Mackintosh for a rush down the Winborough Road. It was still raining but the clouds showed a momentary lightning, and a few gleams of watery sunshine brought out every now and then that sparkle on the trees, that iridescent beauty of distance and atmosphere, which goes so far to make a sensitive spectator forget the petulant abundance of mountain rain. Elsmere passed Burwood with a thrill. Should he, or should he not, present himself? Let him push on a bit and think. So on he swung, measuring his tall frame against the gusts, spirits and masculine energy rising higher with every step. At last the passion of his mood had wrestled itself out with the weather, and he turned back once more determined to seek and find her, to face his fortunes like a man. The warm rain beating from the west struck on his uplifted face. He welcomed it as a friend. Rain and storm had opened to him the gates of a spiritual citadel. What could ever wholly close it against him any more? He felt so strong, so confident, patience and courage. Before him the great hollow of High Fell was just coming out from the white mists surging round it. A shaft of sunlight lay across its upper end, and he caught a marvellous apparition of a sunlit valley hung in air, a pale strip of blue above it, a white thread of stream wavering through it, and all around it and below it the rolling rain-clouds. Suddenly, between him and that enchanter's vision, he saw a dark, slim figure against the mists, walking before him along the road. It was Catherine. Catherine just emerged from a footpath across the fields, battling with wind and rain, and quite unconscious of any spectator. Oh, what a sudden thrill was that! What a leaping together of joy and dread, which sent the blood to his heart! Alone! They two alone again, in the wild Westmoreland mists, and half a mile at least of winding road between them and Burwood. He flew after her, dreading, and yet longing for the moment when he should meet her eyes. Fortune had suddenly given this hour into his hands. He felt it open upon him like that mystic valley in the clouds. Catherine heard the hurrying steps behind her, and turned. 
There was an evident start when she caught sight of her pursuer, a quick change of expression. She wore a close-fitting, waterproof dress and a cap. Her hair was lightly loosened, her cheek freshened by the storm. He came up with her. He took her hand, his eyes dancing with the joy he could not hide. "'What are you made of, I wonder?' he said gaily. "'Nothing, certainly, that minds weather.' "'No Westmoreland native thinks of staying at home for this,' she said with her quiet smile, moving on beside him as she spoke. He looked down upon her with an indecipherable mixture of feelings. No stiffness, no coldness in her manner, only the even gentleness which always marked her out from others. He felt as though yesterday were blotted out, and would not for worlds have recalled it to her or reproached her with it. Let it be as though they were but carrying on the scene of the stepping-stones. "'Look,' he said, pointing to the west, "'have you been watching that magical break in the clouds?' Her eyes followed his, till the delicate picture hung high among the moving mists. "'Ah!' she exclaimed, her face kindling. "'That is one of our loveliest effects, and one of the rarest. You are lucky to have seen it.' "'I am conceited enough,' he said joyously, "'to feel as if some enchanter were at work up there, drawing pictures on the mists, for my special benefit. "'How welcome the rain is! As I am afraid you have heard me say before, what new charm it gives to your valley!' There was something in the buoyancy and force of his mood that seemed to make Catherine shrink into herself. She would not pursue the subject of Westmoreland. She asked, with a little stiffness, whether he had good news from Mrs. Ellesmere. "'Oh, yes. As usual, she is doing everything for me,' he said, smiling. "'It is disgraceful that I should be idling here while she is struggling with carpenters and papers and puzzling out the decorations of the drawing-room. She writes to me in a fury about the word artistic.' She declares even the little upholsterer at Churton hurls it at her every other minute, and that if it weren't for me she would select everything as frankly, primevally hideous as she could find, just to spite him. As it is, he has so warped her judgment that she has left the sitting-room papers till I arrive. For the drawing-room she vows a passionate preference for one all cabbage roses and nose talks, but she admits that it may be exasperation. And she wants your sister clearly to advise her. By the way— and his voice changed. The vicar told me last night that Miss Rose is going to Manchester for a winter to study. He heard it from Miss Agnes, I think. The news interested me greatly after our conversation. He looked at her with the most winning interrogative eyes. His whole manner implied that everything which touched and concerned her touched and concerned him, and moreover that she had given him in some sort a right to share her thoughts and difficulties. Catherine struggled with herself. "'I trust it may answer,' she said in a low voice. But she would say no more, and he felt rebuffed. His buoyancy began to desert him. "'It must be a great trial to Mrs. Ellesmere,' she said presently, with an effort, once more steering away from herself and her concerns. "'This going back to her old home?' "'It is. My father's long struggle for life in that house is a very painful memory. I wished her to put it off till I could go with her.' but she declared she would rather get over the first week or two by herself. "'How I should like you to know my mother, Miss Leyburn!' At this she could not help meeting his glance and smile and answering them, though with a kind of constraint most unlike her. "'I hope I may some day see Mrs. Ellesmere,' she said. "'It is one of my strongest wishes,' he answered hurriedly, "'to bring you together.' The words were simple enough. The tone was full of emotion. 
He was fast losing control of himself. She felt it through every nerve, and a sort of wild dread seized her of what he might say next. Oh, she must, she must prevent it. Your mother was with you most of your Oxford life, was she not? she said, forcing herself to speak in her most everyday tones. He controlled himself with a mighty effort. Since I became a fellow, we have been alone in the world so long. We have never been able to do without each other. Isn't it wonderful to you? said Catherine, after a little electric pause, and her voice was steadier and clearer than it had been since the beginning of their conversation. How little the majority of sons and daughters regard their parents when they come to grow up and want to live their own lives? The one thought seems to be to get rid of them, to throw off their claims, to cut them adrift, to escape them. Decently, of course, and under many pretexts, but still to escape them. All the long years of devotion and self-sacrifice go for nothing. He looked at her quickly, a troubled, questioning look. It is so, often, but not, I think, where the parents have truly understood their problem. The real difficulty for father and mother is not childhood, but youth. How to get over that difficult time when the child passes into the man or woman, and a relation of governor and governed should become the purest and closest of friendships. You and I have been lucky. Yes, she said, looking straight before her, and still speaking with a distinctness which caught his ear painfully. And so are the greater debtors. There is no excuse, I think, for any child, least of all for the child who has had years of understanding love to look back upon, if it puts its own claim first, if it insists on satisfying itself, when there is age and weakness appealing to it on the other side, when it is still urgently needed to help those older, to shield those younger, than itself. Its business, first of all, is to pay its debt, whatever the cost. The voice was low, but it had the clear vibrating ring of steel. Robert's face had darkened visibly. "'But surely,' he cried, goaded by a new stinging sense of revolt and pain, "'surely the child may make a fatal mistake if it imagines that its own happiness counts for nothing in the parent's eyes. What parent but must suffer from the starving of the child's nature? What have mother and father been working for, after all, but the perfecting of the child's life? Their longing is that it should fulfil itself in all directions.' New ties, new affections on the child's part mean the enriching of the parent. What a cruel fate for the older generation to make it the jailer and burden of the younger! He spoke with heat and anger, with a sense of dashing himself against an obstacle, and a dumb, despairing certainty rising at the heart of him. "'Ah, that is what we are so ready to say,' she answered, her breath coming more quickly, and her eye meeting his with a kind of antagonism in it. But it is all sophistry. The only safety lies in following out the plain duty. The parent wants the child's help and care, the child is bound to give it. That is all it needs to know. If it forms new ties, it belongs to them, not to the old ones. The old ones must come to be forgotten and put aside. So you would make all life a sacrifice to the past? he cried, quivering under the blow she was dealing him. "'No, not all life,' she said, struggling hard to preserve her perfect calm of manner. He could not know that she was trembling from head to foot. "'There are many for whom it is easy and right to choose their own way. Their happiness robs no one. There are others on whom a charge has been laid from their childhood, a charge perhaps—' and her voice faltered at last—' impressed on them by dying lips, 
which must govern, possess their lives, which it would be baseness, treason, to betray. We are not here only to be happy. And she turned to him, deadly pale, the faintest, sweetest smile on her lip. He was for the moment incapable of speech. He began phrase after phrase, and broke them off. A whirlwind of feelings possessed him. The strangeness, the unworldliness of what she had done struck him singularly. He realised through every nerve that what she had just said to him she had been bracing herself to say to him ever since their last parting. And now he could not tell, or rather blindly could not see, whether she suffered in the saying of it. A passionate protest rose in him, not so much against her words as against her self-control. The man in him rose up against the woman's unlooked-for, unwelcome strength. But as the hot words she had dared so much in her simplicity to avert from them both were bursting from him, they were checked by a sudden physical difficulty. A bit of road was under water. A little beck swollen by the rain had overflowed, and for a few yards' distance the water stood about eight inches deep from hedge to hedge. Robert had splashed through the flood half an hour before, but it had risen rapidly since then. He had to apply his mind to the practical task of finding a way to the other side. "'You must climb the bank,' he said, "'and get through into the field.' She assented mutely. He went first, drew her up the bank, forced his way through the loosely growing hedge himself, and holding back some young hazel saplings and breaking others, made an opening for her through which she scrambled with bent head. Then, stretching out his hand to her, he made her submit to be helped down the steep bank on the other side. Her straight young figure was just above him, her breath almost on his cheek. "'You talk of baseness and treason,' he began passionately, conscious of a hundred wild impulses, as perforce she lent her light weight upon his arm. "'Life is not so simple. It is so easy to sacrifice others with oneself, to slay all claims in honour of one instead of knitting the new ones to the old. Is life to be allowed no natural expansion?' Have you forgotten that, in refusing to the new bond for the old bond's sake, the child may be simply wronging the parents, depriving them of another affection, another support, which ought to have been theirs? His tone was harsh, almost violent. It seemed to him that she grew suddenly white, and he grasped her more firmly still. She reached the level of the field, quickly withdrew her hand, and for a moment their eyes met, her pale face raised to his. It seemed an age, so much was said in that look. There was appeal on her side, passion on his. Plainly she implored him to say no more, to spare her and himself. "'In some cases,' she said, and her voice sounded strained and hoarse to both of them, "'one cannot risk the old bond. One dare not trust oneself or circumstance. The responsibility is too great. One can but follow the beaten path.' cling to the one thread. But don't let us talk of it any more. We must make for that gate, Mr. Ellesmere. It will bring us out on the road again, close by home. He was quelled. Speech suddenly became impossible to him. He was struck again with that sense of a will firmer than more tenacious than his own, which visited him in a slight passing way on the first evening they ever met, and now filled him with a kind of despair. As they pushed silently along the edge of the dripping meadow, he noticed with a pang that the stepping-stones lay just below them. The gleam of sun had died away, 
The aerial valley in the clouds had vanished, and a fresh storm of rain brought back the colour to Catherine's cheek. On their left hand was the roaring of the river. On their right they could already hear the wind moaning and tearing through the trees which sheltered Burwood. The nature, which an hour ago had seemed to him so full of stimulus and exhilaration, had taken to itself a note of gloom and mourning. For he was at the age when nature is the mere docile responsive mirror of the spirit, when all her forces and powers are made for us, and are only there to play chorus to our own story. They reached the little lane leading to the gate of Burwood. She paused at the foot of it. "'You will come in and see my mother, Mr. Ellesmere?' Her look expressed a yearning she could not crush. "'Your pardon, your friendship,' it cried, with the usual futility of all good women under the circumstances. But as he met it for one passionate instant, he recognised fully that there was not a trace of yielding in it. At the bottom of the softness there was the iron of resolution. "'No, no, not now,' he said involuntarily, and she never forgot the painful struggle of the face. "'Good-bye.' He touched her hand without another word, and was gone. She toiled up to the gate with difficulty, the grey rain-washed road, the wall, the trees, swimming before her eyes. In the hall she came across Agnes, who caught hold of her with a start. "'My dear Cathy, you've been walking yourself to death. You look like a ghost. Come and have some tea at once.' And she dragged her into the drawing-room. Catherine submitted with all her usual outward calm faintly smiling at her sister's onslaught. But she would not let Agnes put her down on the sofa. She stood with her hands on the back of a chair. "'The weather is very close and exhausting,' she said, gently lifting her hand to her hat. But the hand dropped, and she sank heavily into the chair. "'Cathy, you are faint!' cried Agnes, running to her. Catherine waved her away, and with an effort of which none but she would have been capable, mastered the physical weakness. "'I have been a long way, dear,' she said, as though in apology, "'and there is no air. Yes, I, I will go upstairs and lie down a minute or two. Oh, no, don't come. I'll be down for tea directly.' And refusing all help, she guided herself out of the room, her face the colour of the foam on the beck outside. Addis stood dumbfounded. Never in her life before had she seen Catherine betray any such signs of physical exhaustion. Suddenly Rose ran in, shut the door carefully behind her, and, rushing up to Agnes, put her hands on her shoulders. "'He's proposed her, and she said no.' "'He? What, Mr. Ellesmere? How on earth can you know?' "'I saw them from upstairs come to the bottom of the lane. Then he rushed on, and I have just met her on the stairs. It's as plain as the nose on your face.' Agnes sat down, bewildered. "'It is hard on him,' she said at last. "'Yes, it is very hard on him.' cried Rose, pacing the room, her long, thin arms clasped behind her, her eyes flashing, for she loves him. Rose! She does, my dear, she does, cried the girl, frowning. I know it in a hundred ways. Agnes ruminated. And it's all because of us, she said at last, reflectively. Of course. I put it to you, Agnes. And Rose stood still with a tragic air. I put it to you whether it isn't too bad that three unoffending women should have such a role as this assigned them against their will. The eloquence of eighteen was irresistible. Agnes buried her head in the sofa cushion and shook with a kind of helpless laughter. Rose, meanwhile, stood in the window, her thin form drawn up to its full height, 
angry with Agnes, and enraged with all the world. "'It's absurd! It's insulting!' she exclaimed. "'I should imagine that you and I, Agnes, were old enough and sane enough to look after Mamma, put out the stalls, say our prayers, and prevent each other from running away with the adventurers. I won't be always in leading strings. I won't acknowledge that Catherine is bound to be an old maid to keep me in order. I hate it! It is sacrifice run mad!' And Rose turned to her sister, the defiant head thrown back, a passion of manifold protest in the girlish looks. "'It is very easy, my dear, to be judge in one's own case,' replied Agnes calmly, recovering herself. "'Suppose you tell Catherine some of these home-truths.' Rose collapsed at once. She sat down despondently, and fell, head drooping, into a moody silence. Agnes watched her with a kind of triumph. When it came to the point, she knew perfectly well that there was not a will among them that could measure itself with any chance of success against that lofty but unwavering will of Catherine's. Rose was violent, and there was much reason in her violence. But as for her, she preferred not to dash her head against stone walls. "'Well, then, if you won't say them to Catherine, say them to Mamma," she suggested presently, but half ironically. "Mamma's no good!' cried Rose angrily. "'Why do you bring her in?' Catherine would talk her round in ten minutes. Long after everyone else in Burwood, even the chafing, excited Rose, was asleep. Catherine, in her dimly lighted room, where the stormy northwest wind beat noisily against her window, was sitting in a low chair, her head leaning against her bed, her little well-worn testament open on her knee. But she was not reading. Her eyes were shut, one hand hung down beside her, and tears were raining fast and silently over her cheeks. It was the stillest, most restrained weeping. She hardly knew why she wept. She only knew that there was something within her which must have its way. What did this inner smart and tumult mean, this rebellion of the self against the will which had never yet found its mastery fail it? It was as though from her childhood till now she had lived in a moral world whereof the aims, the dangers, the joys were all she knew, and now the walls of this world were crumbling round her, and strange lights, strange voices, strange colours were breaking through. All the sayings of Christ which had lain closest to her heart for years, to-night, for the first time, seemed to her no longer sayings of comfort or command, but sayings of fire and flame that burn their coercing way through life and thought. We recite so glibly, He that loses his life shall save it. And when we come to any of the common crises of experience, which are the source of the sanction of the words, flesh and blood recoil. This girl, amid her mountains, had carried religion as far as religion can be carried before it meets life in the wrestle appointed it. The calm, simple outlines of things are blurring before her eyes. The great placid deeps of the soul are breaking up. To the purest ascetic temper a struggle of this kind is hardly real. Catherine felt a bitter surprise at her own pain. Yesterday a sort of mystical exultation upheld her. What had broken it down? Simply a pair of reproachful eyes, a pale protesting face. What trifles compared to the awful necessity of as of an infinite obedience? And yet they haunt her, till her heart aches for misery, till she only yearns to be counselled, to be forgiven, to be at least understood. "'Why? Why am I so weak?' she cried, in utter abasement of soul. 
and knew not that in that weakness, or rather in the founts of character from which it sprang, lay the innermost safeguard of her life. End of Book One Chapter Eight